Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust, our podcast series which examines from a range of different perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Today's podcast was recorded in front of a live internet studio audience bringing together people from across the UK, so therefore you might notice the sound quality in some parts does reflect this. Hello, welcome to this special recording of the Vulnerability Matters podcast. I'm Chris Fitch from the Money Advice Trust, and I'm joining you live from the Money Advice Liaison Group's 2021 Virtual Connect Conference. Today, we're looking at experts by experience, and in particular, how charities and people with a lived experience of vulnerability want to help shape the thinking and practice of organizations across the UK, including essential services. Now, on the face of it, this might not sound like a contentious topic for debate. After all, no one would argue that understanding consumer need is important. Few of us would balk against the principle of listening to real-life consumers to do this, and only the most contrarian among us might contend that partnerships with charities are pointless. However, while most regulators, including the FCA and others, now expect firms to be increasingly active in doing this, this does introduce a large challenge. Practically, Just how do organizations do this when there are 28 million vulnerable consumers, all with different needs? 166,000 UK charities, many with campaigns, most with recommendations, and an increasing number with an eye on partnerships too, and just 24 hours in a day to make this all work. So today we're asking, just what is an expert by experience? How do organizations go about selecting which experts and charities to work with? out of the thousands available? And what difference can this engagement make to the way our organisations operate and their outcomes? Joining us to mull over this and much, much more are John Attenborough, who's a multi-award winning disability campaigner and Ewan's Guide Ambassador, Ewan's Guide being the website that reviews accessibility of different venues and firms, Jane Roderick, Head of Consumer Vulnerability, Strategy and Engagement at Lloyd's Banking Group, and as of yesterday, a graduate of the UK Finance and Money Advice Trust Vulnerability Academy. We've got Sam Nurse as well with us today, Chair of the Money Advice Hub, a free debt advice organisation, St George's House Leadership Fellow and Service Design Innovator. Jan Levy, Managing Director at Three Hands, is also with us, an organisation that brings people with lived experience of vulnerability with organisations together who want to understand and connect with the lived experience perspective. And Carl Packman, Head of Corporate Engagement at Fair by Design, funded by the Barry Cadbury Trust, an organisation that places inclusivity at the heart of its attempt to end the poverty premium. And of course, you, our audience. So please do use the chat function to submit your questions to the panel. So we're going to start with the absolute fundamentals. I'm going to turn to uh, John first. So um, John, um, what is an expert by experience? Uh, Thanks, Chris. And uh, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for inviting me along to be part of the panel. It's, you know, an absolute honour. What is somebody with lived experience? That's somebody who has an experience that's not quite what would be perceived to be in quotation marks normal and you know that's sort of maybe an abject phrase to use but you know personally I'm registered blind and I'm a guide dog owner and now there's 5,000 guide dog owners in the UK Um, so there's 5,000 people who might all have very different experiences because not all 
people who are registered blind or partially sighted or in a wheelchair actually have, you know, exactly the same experiences. There's people who, people might have exactly the same conditions, but their experiences are very, very different. Um, so I would say somebody with lived experience is definitely somebody who, you know, really needs to take, you know, almost inform other people of how best to support them. So using that insight from their everyday experience to help inform others about some of the ways perhaps they can uh, meet needs or provide support. Is, 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 is that right, John? Absolutely. I think it's about informing people how they can best adapt what they already have to support as many people as possible. So what might seem obvious is something like maybe if, if you've got steps into your premises to have some sort of portable ramp or a, an external lift to help somebody who's in a wheelchair get into the building because how you know that's a potential customer that or potential customers that you're missing out on if they can't even get into your building um or you know having uh literature in alternative formats you know a lot of people would uh, who are blind or partial sight prefer things in digital formats so maybe via email or they mm. might want large print copies of things or braille copies so it's always a, a good idea to sort of have these things in the back of your mind when when planning for new things as well that's really helpful now Jan I just I just turned to you there John's talking about the the insight that can be gained uh from involving a, a lived experience and your organization brings together people with lived experience and and businesses so what is the case what's the business case for using experts by experience like John yeah, thanks, Chris. Yeah, it, it's it's one of the things we do in the grand scheme of trying to get businesses just more immersed in society and more aware of what is going on in communities around us. I think the case is that it just gives a real depth and richness of insight. Um, I like to talk about the truths that come from engaging with lived experts. If you see that market research is a starting point, Market research is very well established. It's useful. It's typically quite extractive and transactional. This, however, is true learning from people who are literally experts in whatever it is they're going through in life. They might be in the thick of it. It might be a permanent state for them, or it might be something that they have been through and are now reflecting on in the past. And it's the power of the storytelling that can come from lived experts that can be so transformational in terms of the way that organizations go about things and the way that people build their awareness of what is going on for others. And storytelling, as you know, is super, super powerful. Some of these things you hear, you might be able to read in a report for sure, but when you hear it from the horse's mouth, as it were, um, you're more likely to act on it. Um, and just lastly, I'll say, it's not just stories lived experts also want to give their advice and they want to give their ideas for how a business can do things better. And those uh, ideas and that advice is invariably really valuable. So there's these different levels of engagement with, with lived experience. So can we just explore a bit more, uh, Jan? Because you, you, you started talking there about uh, market research was um, quite um, reductive 
you know, can squeeze things down to percentages or numbers or a small quote. Are you talking about a more immersive engagement with people who've got the lived experience of disability or of poverty or of a health condition? Is that, is that the key element here in lived experience? I think immersive is a really, really key word here. And I think it's important if you are looking for insight from some sort of immersive engagement with people to go in with some sort of objective problem statement, opportunity statement in mind to guide and focus the discussions. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it being immersive is that wherever possible, it's good to go beyond the focus group style conversation in a circle. So sometimes that's the right way, because a topic is sensitive. You don't want to do anything too gimmicky. When we've worked with people who've been through cancer, for example, it's, it's, a, it's a conversation in a circle about people's experience. But when we've talked to older people about the challenges around getting older, then we've built in other types of activities that help people to reveal their truths, to reveal their insights, like a, a debate or a drama workshop on your relationship with money, for example. So different types of activities, depending upon the vulnerability in the context. Okay, Carl, you're, you're, you're listening in there. It's, it sounds uh, that um, experts by experience, these people who've got the lived experience are there to stop us making assumptions, to stop biases creeping in. Is, is that right? Is that the case for using experts by experience? Yeah, yeah, because I think on the face of it, the description of this term expertise by experience could describe just about anyone. I think what the usefulness of experts by experience and expertise by experience is that it, it potentially challenges the biases of those product designers, service designers who, you know, with all the will in the world are reflecting, you know, in part or fully their own lens on the on the world, which means that there's a lot missed out. You know, the designers of products and services tend to be um, much more privileged in society. And, um, and what expertise by experience does is push that a little further and take some of those biases out so you don't have to, so you're not in a situation later on where you're having to, to clear up a mess because there's bad outcomes for those people with different experiences to those products and service designers. So am, am I an expert by experience? Carl, are you an expert by experience? Are we all experts by experience? Or is there something that distinguishes uh, these individuals? I would say that, that we are experts in, we are partially experts in our own experience um, to some degree, but it's whether, it's how useful my expertise or my experience is to someone who has um, particular gaps in their knowledge about how to create products and services that work for people who may well be excluded by a system that doesn't work for them at the moment. I saw Jane uh, nodding along. It's Jane. So is, is that your understanding of expertise, uh, expert by experience? Can I cover off how, how we use that kind of experts by experience within, I guess, post banking, um, if, that, if that's kind of helpful, I guess. We've, you know, to, to Jan's point, we use research and kind of you might expect um, we also have about 65,000 colleagues. So again, going back to Carl's point, you're kind of representative of UK society and, and we use their experience in their everyday roles. But I guess, you know, that's importantly for, for the conversation today, we, we work with a number of charities in, in that kind of space. So um, I think really for us, it's, it's kind of invaluable to have that experts by kind of experience, kind of that input and feedback on our products uh, and processes um, kind of, you know, for example, we had um, 
some great insight when we were kind of creating a trusted person card, which is a product we launched during the pandemic for, for people to bring people shielding um, or you know, who might require kind of support getting shopping and cash, but kind of getting back with experience to make sure we were considering the right things in, in, that, in that process. Or, um, I guess it kind of, it really kind of helps us understand that challenge that customers or, or people might face and, and how we might support them. But importantly, um, how things can be more difficult if we don't support them. And I'll, I'll give a kind of example of that one probably would be, we've, we've been working with um, surviving economic abuse, you know, who, who have a number of experts by experience. And we've engaged with them, we brought them in, kind of working with our product uh, and process teams to, to really kind of understand what they what they might need and, and you know how we can how we can support i guess similarly kind of working with people like uh, the national autistic society kind of help with bringing people who who live with autism in to, to um, assess the support we offer actually uh, and and our websites to kind of understand if we if we've missed anything or if we need to to develop so so i think you know overall kind of some examples of how we might use it but it's really is that kind of Helping us consider what else we might we might need to to when we're thinking about that kind of flexibility and support. So it it it's, it sounds like and uh, Sam, I'll come for a comment to you in in just just a second here. Um, but John, you're you're listening in there. It it, it sounds like um uh, an expert by experience is is about that immersion. Um, Jan was talking about storytelling. Uh, Carl was talking about avoiding bias. It sounds like also cutting out the middleman or middlewoman letting people speak for themselves. Would that be on the right lines? I would absolutely agree with that. Um, yeah, I think it's about trying to absorb as much information as you can from a wide range of people and trying to, you know, apply that across everything that you do so that the services that you provide are inclusive of everybody. Now, one of, one of the, th- one of the things... Um, I'm a big advocate for is diversity in the workforce. So a lot of the times when somebody wants to implement a new service or um, make some changes, even small changes to their premises, they usually go out and sort of consult with various charities. It might be the National Autistic Society, it might be RNIB, it might be um, Deaf Action or whatever. But if you had, you know, colleagues working within your premises who were deaf or who were blind or who were wheelchair users, you would have that resource there in your organization to, to just quickly even send them an email. What do you think about this change? You know, what can we do to, to make it better? So we can actually simplify the consultation process by diversifying the workforce as well. And I think that's a, that's a really important point. So it, it seems here that it's, it's about, it's about including people who may not be necessary part of the design or the thought process or the discussion about that question. What do we do about X? That seems to yeah. be the, the, the essence that we're getting here. Now, Sam, you're listening in here. There's been a big push, you know, the regulator, the FCA, and also in some other essential services sectors have made the push for understanding consumer need. Um, and the focus has fallen there with the FCA on financial services, which of course includes debt advice. So where does this, where does this debate around lived experience sit within debt advice or a debt advisors rolling their eyes and saying, look, every time I speak to a client, I'm engaging with lived experience. Why do I need to do this as an extra? Um, it's a very good point, um, Chris. Hello, Chris, and hello to the listeners. 
I would argue that the not-for-profit sector has been doing this for many years already. It's nothing new in our sector. And as I was a citizen's advice manager, what, 15 years ago, this is something that we were doing right at that point, um, 15 years ago, um, with looking at client needs analysis, um, shaping our services. Um, much of our services are about reaching vulnerable and hard to reach people. Um, so we've been doing this for a very long time. Um, it might not have been called the same thing. Um, things have a habit of changing names, um, but that's what we're doing. And any of the not-for-profit organizations out there, that, out there that are chasing uh, grant opportunities, if you apply to the big lottery fund at the moment, it's actually a prerequisite um, to have a group of expert users uh, that you liaise with before you even put your bid together. So this is nothing new for the not-for-profit sector. I welcome the FCA's intervention or encouragement to embrace this wholly. I would argue that any service industry should have inclusive design and speak to their experts. Um, and I've also got quite a lot to share, although I don't want to hog the, the space here about what we've been doing at Money Advice Hub. So one of the things as a community interest company we've done from the very start is shape our services with our users. And uh, going back to one of the points about what's the business reason for doing it, um, there are many, many reasons for doing it. Um, I have found that it's better for client retention. I have found it more efficient uh, for the team. Um, but one of the other um, things that I wanted to draw on was you asked if we were all experts by experience. And I think we need to embrace that and, and consider our staff to be experts by experience because this is a cultural thing. It's all very well telling people to do it, but are they buying into it? The best way to deliver a policy is actually to get people's buy-in. It's change management, it's getting people embracing what it all stands for. So um, one of the things I hate um, is acronyms, but I've ended up with an acronym for something that we do in our service design which is cake, um, and it is what it says, a piece of cake. I wanted to have that acronym because it makes things simple. And I think it was John that mentioned, don't overcomplicate things. Um, that's the same for the people executing your service design and for your service users. So we break it down very simply with communications, authentication, uh, kinetics and expectations. And one of the things I wanted to draw on, particularly in the COVID pandemic, is we've seen a lot of very frustrated users. We've had some people shouting at staff, and I'm a big mother hen, mother goose, whatever you want to call me with my staff. Um, I'm very protective of them. And I think if you look on social media, you'll see a lot of debt advisors at the moment complaining about their well-being, and rightly so. We're under a lot of pressure. And sometimes vulnerable people have different things wrong with them. They can be quite aggressive. And we also need to protect our staff. So I try to get my staff to buy into what we're doing with service design and think about what the needs of that person are that's vulnerable. And sometimes that's expectations. And I want to give you a big example of this. You can fight the expectations of some people, i.e. tell you every day. Um, because they're anxious and they want your attention. And sometimes you can make that judgment of managing that expectation because their vulnerability is manageable with your service. 
And sometimes you might go with the flow because you're going to get less problems from that client if you just give them that little bit of coaxing and say, hi, I'll speak to you tomorrow, I'll book you in next week, keeping that engagement going. So it's really about looking at people as individuals and listening to them um, to get them moving through our, our services that we do in debt advice. Okay, that, that's really helpful. Um, and I, I think, yeah, what you're describing there would be familiar to lots of us. Thinking, um, and I'll bring in Jan first here, thinking here about we've we tried to start to nail down what an expert by experience is. Uh, and I think we've nailed it down to um, someone with a lived experience that we don't have within our group, within our tribe, within our team, that actually will make things better for the way in which we deliver a service back to that person and people with maybe similar experiences like them. That seems to be what we've nailed it down a bit. But Jan, you know, drawing on some of the work that you've done, you start first. What are the golden rules for involving people with lived experience in an organization's work? So you can tell us some of the golden do nots as well. Gosh, there are so many. I won't, I won't um, list all of them because I'm sure um, our other speakers will have loads as well. Just, think, just in terms of um, don'ts, and um, when it might be not appropriate first to try to engage with people with lived experience of issues. And I think you've got to be very, very sensitive to situations. And sometimes that lived experience is just too raw for people, or they might just be in the thick of it uh, a little bit too much to feel comfortable sharing or to share in a productive way. So taking a particular example with work that we've done with ex-gambling addicts, some people are ready to share their experiences and talk about them somewhat objectively with a bit of distance between them and their addiction. And other people are just not, it's too close. They're not addicts anymore. They're on a recovery journey, but it's too close to the bone still. And certainly I've had experience of working with both types of people and the risk of bringing in people for whom it's still very real is that a conversation can be a trigger and a trigger that can lead to a downward spiral. So I think that's one important point to make. I completely agree with Sam about charity staff, people at the front line who support uh, people with vulnerabilities day in, day out, are experts as well. And sometimes uh, we engage with charity staff and volunteers who can tell stories about any number of their clients um, who for good reason aren't going to come forward themselves. And, and, and charity staff, I talk about charities being at the cold face of society and they understand really what is going on in people's lives. A um, couple more super quick points on golden rules. Um, and perhaps actually linking back to my first point about triggers, make it a safe space. Um, I'll, I'll quote directly from um, a, a, a guy some of you might have heard of, Matt Blanks, who works at Bet No More, who is um, the, the, the gambling support charity. Um, he, he is an expert by experience. He's also a member of staff at the charity. So the two are combining there. He tells his story sometimes maybe two or three times a week. And he said, um, if you're going to open up about deeply traumatic experience, experiences with strangers, you are going to feel vulnerable. And so we have to create a safe space for people. We have to do that with really skilled facilitation, getting the right tone, the right activities, the right type of conversation, the right numbers of people in a room. Uh, we have to show people respect. We have to treat them as the experts that they are. Um, and sometimes, lastly, um, even though we all love being in a room with each other, face-to-face -face is what we're 
looking forward to getting back to. Actually, this Zoom um, can provide one of those safe spaces and sometimes feel, people feel a bit more at home uh, in their own homes um, on uh, behind the camera. And also allow more people to participate who may not be able to access a, a physical venue as well. Jane, I'm going to come to you in a moment and ask you the same question I'm now going to ask Carl. Uh, Carl, what, what are your one and two golden rules about involving people with lived experience, giving everything that Fair by Design stands for? I was going to say three, but you've told me one or two. <laughs> can I have three if you're quick, Carl. That's I'll nice. be really quick, I promise. Um, the three major ones, and I'll explain, um, are, are proper recruitment, proper experience ma uh, mapping, and proper situational learning. These are my three golden rules. So the recruitment aspect is that recruitment has to of ex experts by experience has to fill in gaps in our knowledge and essentially take us out of our safe uh, our safe zones. Uh, and what I mean by that is it's no good playing safe by um, trying to identify and understand experiences that we're already familiar with. We need to, the product designers, service designers, need to essentially take themselves out of their comfort zones in that respect. Um, included in that is, is proper safeguarding and also importantly compensation for, for, tar for the time of people with expertise by experience. Um, experience mapping, there is a long process here, but the Design Council have a very useful four Ds and it's discover, define, develop, and deliver. And what that means is it's a process of understanding expertise by experience and using that insight to be able to um, um, insert and input into product design and service design properly. And situational learning is, is learning about the way in which people interact with products and services in normal situations. So that means not just doing a focus group, not doing um market uh, uh you know sort of market exercises where you where you demonstrate your product as to to a, a group of, of of listeners but actually um how is my product how is my service being used by someone when the situation is perhaps rather tense when the situation is a normal situation with all the stresses and strains that that often people go into so uh, those are my three for, for three for good rules so so keeping it natural almost like a, a lived yeah. lab kind of experience jane uh you know I, I won't push you for three one or two will do what's your, what's your golden rules here yeah i've probably got about four i was gonna add in four be great very, okay something like that. <laughs> it's kind of very quick i'm probably coming at it from a slightly different i guess some of the other end of, of, of that really so um that's, uh, repeating what's already been said but that kind of being really clear on why you're engaging to kind of what is the gap or the piece of insight that you're looking to understand uh, in more detail i think then it's really uh, kind of kind of working also with the with the charity to kind of create that safe environment but um not trying to kind of assume or steer the conversation kind of being open to what that what, what you're, you're hearing through there um for us it's really being conscious of our size and scale and um, because there's quite a lot there's a disparity between who we might be talking to so just to be again creating a comfortable environment do you mean power there jane a, a power imbalance no i mean you can all get very excited and you might get lots of us attend and that might be a bit overwhelming for the for the charity so that's okay. what i meant um uh, and really, and the last one then is um, being aware, again, we touched on it earlier, but kind of being aware that whilst we um, are receiving kind of the, the inputs of people that's going to live by experience, that is 
of that person. So representative of what we might be looking at, but isn't the experience of all people within that sort of situation. And just to kind of be mindful of that when we're looking at our perhaps bigger scale kind of customer treatments or products. So Sam, I've got, I've, got, I've got a question for you separate. So I'm just going to skip to John and just John. You were listening to all of that. Um, you heard others define uh, the golden rules for working with experts by experience. What, what, what's your take? What are, what are your three golden rules? I think a lot of what's been said is absolutely right. And I think particularly when it comes to disability and engaging with disabled people, I think one of the best things that you can do is I think a lot of people presume a lot of things or are a bit unsure about how to interact with certain conditions or that so just ask you know I think that's that's probably if if there's if there's if there was even just one golden rule I would just say that's really a really big one is just ask you know say how can I support you in you know helping us uh, improve our service so I think that's a really big one and again like everybody else has said you know just creating that safe environment where um, you know they can they, they, can, they, they feel like they've got a safe space and can speak openly and give honest feedback as well um, and another thing that um, I think is quite important I think Jan mentioned it as well is actually treat them like the experts that they are you know, I think a lot of product designers um, go into things thinking, yeah, 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 yeah I, know, I know exactly what I want. But actually, you know, they speak to maybe disabled people about how they can maybe make that product inclusive. And it actually finds that the product that they've came up with is not actually inclusive. So they have to go and rethink a lot of it. So I think definitely treating people about, treat, treating people like, you know, with respect and the treat them like the experts that they are is is another key point so I would say the two my two main ones are you know ask how they would like to be supported because everybody wants to be supported in different ways mm. and treat them with the respect and the experts that they are no, 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 thanks Joe. Sam you, you're listening in there the question I wanted to ask you was around because you've got a great interest in service um, design and innovation and we're hearing from um, John and others about involving people with the experience. The questions around kind of um, expectation, because I often sometimes when you, uh, you you involve and work with groups, maybe it's through a charity, maybe it's through um, clients that have been selected, maybe it's through another group, um, expectations can raise about, ah, this is going to be a fundamental moment. People get excited. They get caught up in the service design process. And uh, sometimes people with lived experience are left all dressed up with nowhere to go. It sounded like they were going to completely re, re radicalize and rehaul your service or product, but yet nothing then happens. So, as a service design kind of expert, uh, how how should we be um, dealing and managing this expectations uh, challenge? Um, that's a very good question. It's quite a difficult question, Chris. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, what I would do is use my charm naturally. Um, no, seriously, <laughs> I think if you um, prepare your your user group well. Um, and give them some terms of engagement, then you are already preparing them and managing their expectations. Um, What do you want to get out of it at the end? I'd be very disappointed if I'd wasted some users' time and didn't actually come up with a product or a service at the end of it. So I don't know, maybe it's the wrong question to ask me. I've never had that situation before. In actual fact, what I would say is quite positive that I've 
kind of started things with goals and ended up with more things at the end of it because it's been such an exceptional experience. And sometimes I clearly asked the overachiever in the group. I'm I'm uh, so sorry. I'm not an overachiever. I'm not an overachiever. I I would just say if you start the process well, and I think Chris would probably, uh, sorry, Carl would probably back me up on this, that if you're doing it and you're experienced in doing it, then you have a goal, don't you? And I think most, most users that engage in that process are quite rewarded by it. Okay, um, it, that's, it, that's, that's my, my experience. Carl's, Carl's nodding, but I'm going to come to Jan just, uh, and, and ask about expectations. Just, uh, just, just, a, just a quick point to add, really, Chris. And what we've heard is that people share their experiences because they want to make a difference, because they don't want others to, be, to go through what they've been through, perhaps. And you know, they know, they're not naive. They know that, especially with, in the big corporate world, change can take a long time to happen. And so one small thing that we've heard is uh, keep us updated. Let us know in three months or six months how you're getting on. Would love it if you made all these changes overnight. But, but either way, if you manage it or not, just come back to us in six months. Let us know how you've done with our ideas. Did our ideas go anywhere? We'd love to know. That's, that's, a, that's a key point, that ongoing communication. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to turn to Jane here and ask just from the... Um, the, uh, the point of view of an organization like Lloyd's, so drawing on your experience here, Jane, you must get a lot of approaches to partner with charities. I mean, there are 166,000 apparently in the UK. Uh, they're not all private schools. Uh, or from charities with ideas on how to change your practice to meet a particular need where there is that excitement. You know, people want to give, as Jan is saying, and they, they, they've got a solution for you. How do you go about deciding who to work with out of those 166,000 charities? And how do you, you manage that process to ensure expectation and communication is, 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 is kept at the kind of uh, the forefront? So, yeah, the, the kind of, you're right. We do get a number of approaches. Um, and I guess there's no, there's no right or wrong. There's no kind of, kind of formula you can, you can apply here. So I really kind of just probably give my view here rather than, than anything else. So um, really, I think it's really about identifying, it's almost back to that per earlier point of why are you engaging with the organization what what is it that you are looking to um, understand more where is the gap that you're trying to kind of um, that you've identified you might need some more kind of help solving uh, you know in our service offering you know um, I think I think that's it'd be great to talk to everyone but it is around what why are you doing it in, in what scenario um, I kind of I'll give an example so we when we started working I guess with Macmillan uh, about sort of a few years ago now, 2015, 2016, you know, they were able to give us a, a report highlighting where um, we perhaps could do more uh, in supporting customers impacted by, by cancer. And really kind of then working with them, able to help us kind of build that support. The, the other bit, I guess, for us then is that we were able to use that as a, I'm going to use the word pathfinder. We were able to kind of use that and apply that to kind of understand how we might support customers who may be facing other situations but might need similar um, support so it's, it's kind of how broad can you take that information can you can you apply it for other groups as well difficult no right or wrong um, the, mm. and the other bit I'd say just in terms of ongoing feedback yeah absolutely I think you know um, if you're engaging with a with an organization and you know they you are able to talk to their clients and their experts by experience it's definitely an ongoing conversation it's not the kind of one and done it's a, you, you keep that updated testing also that you've understood what they've told you and as you're building perhaps something to solve that is it actually working you're in Hollywood mm. 
No, absolutely, absolutely. It's very helpful. We'll, we'll come back to that because I think there is that. There's also that challenge of making sure that um, engagement with one group and the discussions don't lead to unintended consequences for another group of participants with lived experience. But John and Yan, I'll come to John first. Uh, here's a conundrum. So it's sometimes said that you, when you've met one person with cancer, you've met one person with cancer, and no doubt that can be applied to other types of lived experience and vulnerability. So. John, first, if this is true, does this mean that expert by experience can only represent themselves as an individual rather than a much wider group or community? Um, n- not necessarily, no. Um, I mean, I think any expert by experience is, you know, an expert in their own experience. And I think that can be said of absolutely everybody. But what a lot of the um, experts by experience, they're usually involved with their own sort of charities so blind people might be quite involved with RNIB or deaf people might be really heavily involved with deaf action or autistic people the National Autistic Society and what they these organizations do is they sort of represent a collective voice of everybody so I think it's really important to engage with organizations that represent not just these groups of people, but these groups of people who have a range of lived experience. Because myself, I'm registered blind, but somebody else who's registered blind might have a completely different lived experience than me. But what you might find is that the RNIB actually have a sort of, they've maybe had an internal focus group where they've brought these ranges of experiences together and come up with an overriding way of saying this is, you know, generally what you can do to support this group of people. So I think definitely engaging with, uh, you know, the larger organisations is a really good first step. Um, and that, that that can give you a sort of overview of it. It won't give you, it won't give you all the information mm. you need, but it'll certainly give you an overview of how you can include people from various, you know, ba- backgrounds and bring them together. But Another point I would like to make is that it's great engaging with these organisations and you might, but don't engage with them individually, bring them together. You know, you could arrange even, you know, a meeting, a focus group where you might have your own organisation, might have somebody representing RNIB, you might have somebody representing uh, the National Autistic Society or whoever and bring them all together around the same table so they can you know make your service as inclusive as possible rather than having individual consultations or focus groups and then you can always you know use that to reach a compromise because there will be compromises um but you want to make sure that you know as many people if not everybody is included Mm. in what you're trying to do Jan, you're listening there. Jan, I'm horrified. I, I run either Fitch Corporation. I, I'm just hearing from John that I, I can't just speak to one expert by experience. I've got to speak to experts by experience. <laughs> and I have to involve a range of experts by experience. How at three hands do you, do you make this process meaningful whilst making it manageable at the same time? It's interesting. Talking, talking about listening to one expert, it's funny because... Quite often, there's one expert that might stick in your mind. That person's experiences, birth stories will stick in your mind for a very, very long time and conjure some sort of action. And three months later or six months later, and I've heard this from, from you know, businesses we work with, uh, six months later, they're still talking about Joe, who they met at Charity X. Um, and, and that person's story is still shaping 
some of their thinking, some of their decision making. So individuals can be very impactful. But um, yes, let's get this in perspective. When we talk about needing to be engaging with more than one lived expert, we're not necessarily talking about very many. Having these conversations in small groups works really well. A small range of opinions from a community of people with a shared experience, each of whom has their unique take on it, um, but where there are some commonalities in experience is really, uh, is really helpful. So small intimate groups work well um, because they help lived experts feel at ease, but they also help people to build upon each other's points. In terms of guaranteeing a diversity and making sure you've got all sorts of different types of demographics represented and so on and so forth, I think it's hard to be that kind of scientific about it. And sometimes in the world of charity, and certainly based upon our experience, there is absolutely no guarantee as to who will turn up on any given day, especially if it's not an established panel. So some charities have their established panels and they're ahead of the game. They've got people signed up, as it were, to be their experts by experience. Some people, some uh, the charity turns to our schools at their co-production panel, for example. But in other cases, no, it's can, is the charity in a position to bring together a group of people for what starts life as a one-off engagement? And quite frankly, some people might not show up on the day because they're not feeling very well or it's not the day for them to share their experiences. So you just can't be too scientific as to who is going to be on, in the room on um, any given day. So it's, it's an art, you know, it's, a, it's not about perfection, it's about uh, material, practical adequacy. Um, I'm gonna to turn to kind of Carl and, and, and to Sam and to Jane here. Now, charities are facing financially difficult times. Um, now, if every firm, I think there's 52,000 registered FCA firms, so if every <laughs> registered FCA firm suddenly thought, right, lived experience, here we go, um, begins to then start contact, contacting charities, uh, the charity sector could become completely overwhelmed, could it not? My answer to this is going to sound slightly self-interested. I, I work for an organisation that is a charity. Um, I, I think if you believe that this is valuable, and I do believe that uh, bringing lived experience into um every part of, of, of product service design um, and regulation, government design, the whole lot, then it, it, it needs to be compensated, needs to be paid for. Um, I, I mean, I genuinely believe that there, there is the evidence to show that this does bring returns. So if you're, if you're just about, if you're just focused on bottom line, there is a return to be made from um, the value of, of lived experience, you get good customer outcomes, um, you, do, you can do less on, on, on kind of clearing mopping up at the end if, when something goes wrong. Um, these things are very valuable, these things are very healthy, so it should be, it should be paid for. There's, there's a debate to be had about how it's paid for. Um, is, does it come through levies? Does it come through... Um, you know, a, a kind of case-by-case -case basis that is a, a kind of business relationship between charities and, and suppliers and firms. Um, I don't think we're quite there with the debate yet. And I'm not sure if I, cut, I fall down on a particular view of that, but all I do know is that if this is valuable, we all agree it is, then it, then it must be made, paid for. And with the reasons you've said in mind that lots of charities are, are hard up at the moment. 
So Sam, Sam and Jane, Sam first, um, two different sized organizations that you work for, uh, two uh, different um, sort of functions, um, paying for engagement. Uh, would that, for your organization, Sam, kind of wipe out many opportunities to involve people with lived experience in service development or journey development, simply because you know, times are hard in the uh, debt advice sector? Yes, I agree with what Carl said. I think that um, being paid is an incentive um, and also it would put more money in the coffers to actually deliver services to people in need. So um, charities and not-for-profits are usually looking for those sorts of opportunities. But I would agree, um, we're very stretched at the moment. The COVID pandemic, what will happen after the COVID pandemic eases is going to be putting everybody um, on the front line um, advising people but at the same token you have to be pragmatic about services will we not reach people if we don't do these things um, and that's what I'm really thinking of when looking at this sometimes you do have to set aside time to look at client needs analysis we, we are meant to be shaping policy at the same time most organizations have twin aims with policy as well um, and these are things that can influence all sorts of things other than services and products that can influence policy as well. So I think it would be a very good idea. I, I welcome try to do it with our users already um, from a purely internalistic point of view. Um, but also I think I would draw on um, something the Money and Pension Service did with the financial capability strategy. They actually had a, a, a website where you could share your initiatives and your pilots um, and I think that might be something very useful for this um, because I wouldn't mind sharing some of the initiatives we've worked on. Some of them have been really successful. And um, as I said to you, some of them have really been shaped exactly by service users. Um, I'll give you an example. One of my um, gamblers um, started referring a lot of people in the Gamblers Anonymous group um, to Money Advice Hub. And he said to me, Sam, there must be a better way to, to tell them about you. Um, and we came up with um, Debt Club, which was just a, a load of information for people to encourage friends and families to identify people in debt, to encourage them to get help. And that was a really simple thing to do. And it was completely born out of um, a recovering gambling addict. And I, I think that's a nice story to share because it shows how influential this process can be and how beneficial it can be for others. Jane, you're listening there. We, we talked about charities facing difficult times. Uh, you know, those charities may be becoming kind of overwhelmed uh, by approaches to them. Uh, so is, is there a role here for a, a panel of charities or a panel of people with lived experience to offer insight and avoid duplication to provide a function to uh, the advice and the, the creditor sector uh, around what product services journeys should look like? Or is it about perhaps kind of um, firms who commission uh, lived experience work publishing that and sharing it with others or even charities, you know, not turning up with a, a partnership or a development manager when they came for a chat with a, a large organization, but um, making that, um, that insight available for free themselves. How, what, what's the way forward on this? You know, I think it's a really interesting idea. I think, there's probably a few things in there, isn't there, really? So I think, you know, from a, from a lawyer's perspective, you know, we're really conscious and we've kind of touched on that a lot today, kind of the, the value the charity insight brings, but we are aware of that kind of not wanting to overwhelm. So um, there's the kind of a variety of things. I think there's kind of 
quite actively looking at, there's a number of publications that charities issue, kind of reports and insight, those pieces of research, you know, utilising those perhaps as, as part of that. Um, being aware, say, when you're, when you're engaging about when it can be a pathfinder, what is the purpose? And is there, um, can you bring a group of charities together or organisations together to provide that insight or is one perhaps more representative so it could be kind of back to that kind of duplication point and then really a kind of kind of growing your own understanding and insight from engaging with the charities as well you know we have a vulnerability team we talk to a number of organizations and kind of retaining some of that that knowledge it doesn't mean you don't need it on an ongoing basis but you do gain a kind of greater understanding the more you kind of talk to organizations as well so yeah probably a, a few different things and not an easy one to kind of work through so Jan, you're listening there Jan, i worked in the charity sector for 13 years uh Red in tooth and claw in many respects. This, this, this notion of maybe bringing charities together or uh, charities sharing things, and charities do share, they do share quite a lot, but there is still expertise locked up. What, what, what's your take on this? What's the way forward to avoid this duplication mm-hmm. and overstretching the sector? It's a great question. And it's a high quality problem, I'd say, because if businesses really do want to, and other organizations really do want to tap into this lived experience is a very high quality problem. First of all, just on the pricing issue, just on the, on the payment issue, I think it's very, I think I'm, every time we do this with charities and engage people with lived, experts, lived experience through charities, we will um, acknowledge the charity's time and effort and, and, and expertise uh, with a payment. Um, that's just part of the principle of it. But it's very difficult for charities to put a price on this. Yeah. These are organizations that are not used to pricing these types of, in inverted commas, commercial services. And, and you have to be really quite proactive in saying, this is what we're going to, this is, this, this is what we believe is fair. This is what we're going to pay you. Because quite often there, there, there won't be a rate card for anything like this. And, 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 and in my experience, charities are quite bad at saying, this is what this is worth. So um, I think we have to be very proactive around that. Um, to your point, um, I think there's massive potential for a, a, a panel um, that brings people together from lots of different um, charities. Um, I'd, I'd call it a, a community. Um, it's something that we have uh, on our radar um, without being without without really uh, getting to that point yet where um, I can get into it in any detail. But I believe, and actually we've talked to a whole number of charities about this to see if it's kind of feasible from their point of view. And, and, and certainly there is absolutely scope for a national community of lived experts representing a whole number of vulnerabilities. I think that different charities will take different viewpoints on how involved they want to be as, as you put it earlier, the middleman. Do they feel a care of duty to their clients to stay involved and, 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 and be that person between them, protecting them from any harm that might come? Um, or are they happy to say, here you go, here's 20 people who are willing to um, share their experiences and who want a voice um, uh, go crazy. Um, I think that's going to vary from uh, charity to charity. The potential is absolutely there. Is there a model in which it can work for businesses, in which it can be you know, priced at a rate that businesses find fair? I, I don't know that yet, um, but um, uh, something that we're aiming to find out. 
That, that, absolutely. We've got a couple, couple last questions uh, as, as we come to the end. And if, if you do have anything to uh, ask, please do put it in the, uh, in, in, in the chat box. And it's um, come to you, Carl. You know, Fair by Design have done a lot of work around um, lived experience. We touched on that earlier. It's mainly focused on public sector organisations. I, I wonder what you thought the commercial sector could learn from the, uh, the work that you've been doing. Oh, I think um, a great deal of it, if that doesn't sound too big-headed. There's a lot of, um, <laughs> there's, there's certainly, I think, um, a lot that can be drawn on on how you recruit for that lived experience, which I think has um, is, is a, it's been a big part of this conversation as well, because, of course, what we don't um, intend to do is uh, create a situation where it looks like what we're asking for is a huge complexity of products and services and the range of products and services. But what we want is um, different products and services to work for people and to understand their experiences more, to know, you know how exactly um, certain products and services are accessible and how they can be used with, with certain different experiences in mind as part of that so it's it's definitely on on the recruitment side of things um, for me as well as a final point like um, the, the experience of or, or rather putting yourself in the shoes empathy putting yourself in the shoes of someone with a particular experience where you have a gap in your knowledge if you're a service provider or, or a product designer is extremely useful for um, fleshing out and demystifying things that Perhaps we didn't even know we didn't know. And I think that's incredibly useful across the piece, whether you're in a corporate, whether you're in a regulator, whether you're part of government and, and wherever. So this, uh, this process of demystifying a particular experience, um, getting to know the things that we didn't even know we didn't know, these are incredibly useful things. John, I'm going to turn to you for uh, so, uh, the final question before we kind of open it up. Uh, we have a few final comments and thoughts, including those from the audience. So, John, involving people with lived experience can improve development of services, products, journeys, but it can also have a very positive impact on the people with lived experience themselves. Can you tell us just a bit more? Of course. Um, yeah, I think people who pr pr are, you know, providing their um, lived experience to people who are trying to improve their products or services I think is very valuable not just for the people receiving that knowledge but the the person that's also given that knowledge and explaining their experience because it almost makes them you know the the you know the, the, they're the expert in the room you know and that can be quite empowering for people who have maybe never been in that position before you know to inform other people and I think um you know, there's there's definitely there's there's people who have also you know I I know many uh, disabled people who have you know almost made a career out of of it for themselves you know so that's what they do for a living is they provide their lived experience to help other businesses and services improve and I think a key point in that is that you know none of us want to come across things that are inaccessible or things that we're excluded from. We want to help people improve and make their products and services inclusive. So I think a value for the person who's providing that is actually seeing that come to action. It's all good providing your knowledge and experience, but some, you know, not, 
not all the time, but sometimes, you know, you never really see the end product of what you've gave that. So if you see, if you've gave somebody your experience and knowledge and provided them with the tools in order to make their services more inclusive, and then, you know, a couple of months down the line, you've actually seen it, they've acted upon that. That can feel really empowering for the person as well to know in themselves that they've actually made a difference to how that product or service has developed. But John, if you're being paid um, to kind of um, provide a, a viewpoint on a product or a company, um, can there be a, a pressure to be kind of positive as opposed to kind of critical to steer away from difficult subjects? No, I don't think so. I think um, the, the, there's a quote um, that was uh, told to me. Some of you might, some of you people here might know him, Neil Milliken. Um, he's quite, uh, he works for ATOS. And um, he he said something in a webinar that I was in one time and it really kind of stuck with me a few years ago. He said, people people don't value what they don't pay for. So if you're paying for a product or service, you're more likely to value the input that that person's given. Um, you know, you're going to feel more, more, more value. So if you're be, so like if myself or another um, expert by experience was being paid for it, I w- that would probably make me want to be more honest with people, whether that be positive or negative. And that in turn is going to shape how they, you know, uh, go on to develop that product or service. Fantastic. Can I, can I come? So it just the question was raised with me is that Nishra. Uh, so I think I don't agree because I think what happens often that the clients who are asked to uh, participate in this kind of um, sort of the um, experiences. Um, so they, they often chosen from the clients who are happy and they are put forward. Um, and the clients obviously feel this, they have to come back to that service again. And if that's what I was kind of try, trying to explain that they might be feeling under pressure if they are going to come back to the service. So the difference between a service user and someone brought in independently, I think that's an important distinction. We're going to have to draw the podcast, sadly, to a close there. Um, we've, uh, we, we've reached the end of our time, unfortunately. Um, I'd like to thank John Yan. Jane, Sam and Carl, the dangers of alliteration there for their, for their time and their expertise. Thank you very much to uh, Mal for hosting the session. And we look forward to seeing and hearing you all again soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>